Repurposability, baby. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. We've got a great episode today, as well as two catch-up chats with previous guests at the end. So I will keep today's intro short. Just a quick heads up to non-native English speakers today that there will be a few, but only a few, technical expressions in today's show. So head to the Mosaic of China website to follow the transcript, or watch the YouTube version, which has captions running alongside the audio and graphics. So if you hear us use the word talk, it's not T A L K, it's T O R Q U E. Similarly, break is not B R E A K, it's B R A K E. And we mention AI, which of course stands for artificial intelligence. Speaking of the YouTube version of the show, when today's guest introduces his object, you'll hear in the audio version that there are some long pauses. This is not only because I wanted you to have a sense of what was happening in real time, but also because it corresponds with a video that I took with my phone. So it's worth dipping into the YouTube version if you want to see what's happening at that point of the recording. All right, power up! Let's start the show. Thank you so much for coming, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Your full name is Andrew Pether, correct? That is correct. It's、um, son of Peter. Is the is that original、right? derivation, yeah. Well, we've got a lot in common because my father is called Peter.、Huh. So if you're Peter, <laughs> then maybe so am I. <laughs> Whenever I have a Brit sitting opposite me, I'm always more conscious of my British accent. <laughs> How British do you think you are? are? You like many, many, many generations British? Yes, quite a long way back. There's nothing interesting. The、uh, 23 and Me came back like、uh, oh, right. British. Scandinavian, all kind of the same sort of thing that's been washing around in Britain for、yes. a, a millennium. <laughs> <laughs> and the person who we know each other through is our mutual friend Nick Sherwood, another Brit with an equally British name. <laughs> <Yeah> . Shout out to Nick. Well, the first question I ask everyone sitting in that chair is, what object did you bring that, in some way, typifies your life here in China? I bought a robot with me. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what the hell that thing you've dragged in was. So why don't you open it and let's have a look? Sure. <laughs> okay. I think this might count as the largest object anyone has brought. Okay. Yes. Thirty-three <laughs> kilograms. I could actually give you a hand here, but I'm just sitting here watching you do it. <laughs> this is great audio. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Ooh. Okay, right. Well, this is quite elaborate. So, why don't you first of all explain the different components that we're looking at right now? Sure. So, probably the easiest to identify part is the the arm here. So, this is a collaborative industrial robot arm. This is the smallest one that we make. The larger ones, definitely, this would not be feasible. That this one is just about manageable to take it around.、Mm. Um, so, we use this setup for customer demos. With this kind of lightweight of a product, it revolutionises the way you can do those sorts of demos and interactions with new customers. Because if you've got something that's absolutely enormous, there's no way you can take it into someone's office meeting room, just plonk it down, and、uh, show them how it works. So、mm. it's quite an advantage. Absolutely. And then connected to that is、uh, so this silver box here is the controller. Everywhere you see one of these blue plastic caps, there is a motor. 
gearbox, brake, all other stuff inside there. Mm. And then they connect with one cable back through to, to this controller. Okay. Then there's a cable connected to... This is the teach pendant. A teach a, pendant. I don't okay. know why it's called a pendant. It's not like you would ever. <laughs> I actually know some of them that only had buttons on them. Maybe you would wear them around your neck, and that's why they called it a pendant. But mm-hmm. this is essentially an iPad with an emergency stop button on it. So it's got a nice graphical programming interface. If you intuitively know how to use a touchscreen from your smartphone or from your iPad, then you should be pretty good to go with this thing as well. Which means, are you going to do a practical demonstration right now? I think I should. I'm so excited. <laughs> Even though I knew you were in robots, I didn't think you would bring a robot. <laughs> so let's see how it goes. Okay. Maybe while we're waiting for it to boot up, I can see the logo. I can see the name of the company. So maybe you can introduce the company that you work for right now. Sure, yes. So the company is called Universal Robots. We're kind of the original creators of this sub-genre of industrial robotics, collaborative robots. It was started by a few guys out of a university in Denmark. Uh, They started the project in 2005, Mm. released the first robot in 2008, and we've been kind of iterating on those designs ever since. We are now part of the Teradyne Group, which is Mm. uh, a Boston company. But yeah, as I said, we were the first ones to kind of make this type of robot commercially successful, and there must be two, three, four hundred companies making very similar products now. So Mm. it's a form of flattery, right? That uh, that there are so many people (laughs) that make things that resemble our products on the outside, at least. But the, uh, the inner workings, I think we still have a fairly superior offering in that way. And what is your role at Universal Robots? So I'm currently the lead of the global applications team in Asia. Um, So I've been with this company for eight years now, and I've done a number of different roles. And it's all been focused around how our product works and how it can be deployed into different scenarios and manufacturing facilities. Well, it's your job to explain and demonstrate these robots. So I'm going to put you to the test now. (laughs) So is it ready? Has it been fired up? It has, yes. All right, just uh, take it away. Okay, so if you look at this, you'll notice it looks a bit like an arm. So it needs to be integrated with its surroundings. It needs to have something put on the end of the robot arm here as well. I see. So this is just the base setup, and then you can put other things on top of it later on. Yes. Okay. And that makes it incredibly flexible. So this could be used for assembling something, packaging something, picking something up from one place and putting it into a machine for some processing, all different kinds of things, polishing, sanding, deburring, dispensing of glue, these kind of things. You could put a screwdriver on the end for like electronics assembly. So you're not getting any RSI. Your your job becomes a little bit less strenuous and you get to work with a cool robot as well. Okay. Well, why don't we see how it moves? Okay, sure. So I'm going to just add a waypoint in here, click set, and then that's already where I want it to be. Okay. And then I'm going to add a couple more and just teach four different positions that I want it to cycle through. So number one is here. We'll make number two a little bit higher like this. And then number three can come over towards you, Oscar, but not too close. Thank you. And then number four down. So we've kind of got a, a rectangular sort of shape. And we can see on the screen here that this is the, it's not quite a rectangle, but you can see that the shape that the robot, the path the robot is going to follow between these points. So then I just press play. Um, 
Oh, there it goes. Yep, so that's me moving into the first position. And then, yeah, very intuitive interface. There's a play and a pause button at the bottom. And I uh, actually got my two-year-old daughter doing this a couple of weeks ago. And she, <laughs> I didn't even tell her how to press play. I was like, can you, can you press play? And she found it and knew, knew oh, exactly right. what to do. So it's very, very intuitive. Um, so there we go. Point number one, point number two, point number three, point number four. So, and that was in real time. You programmed it just as we were talking. Yes. Yeah. So then in order to become more useful, you would probably need to have some other actions at these points as well. So the simplest kind of application is that we take one of these sort of grippers and we pick something up from one position and we place it in another. So I would want to, say, go to this position here and close the gripper and then move over to this one and then open it. And then you can just kind of build up your logic that way. And yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. Well, thank you so much. I think there have been some objects brought in for this podcast that have been in some ways interactive, but I think this one might be the most. <laughs> Why don't we power it down and then we can just talk without it? Well, thank you for that. And this is a what kind of robot, did you say? So this is a collaborative industrial robot, so meaning humans and robots collaborating together to complete a task. And so how would you distinguish that from what I might have in my head as this traditional robot on a production line? There's a few different aspects. One of them is the safety aspect. So we have force limitations on this type of robot. It's also a lot more lightweight. So when it moves, it has less momentum. It can stop more easily. And it's constantly checking that there are no obstructions to its path. And if something does block it, then it will sense that and it will stop with a small amount of force applied. Right, I see. Because the idea is, is that it's a human and this robot working collaboratively next to each other. Yes. The best example, I think, is if you consider it as like a smart power tool. So assembly tasks where you maybe need to mount some electronics inside a casing. You probably need to put the casing in place. You need to put the circuit board in place and then screw in five screws into that. You can still have the person there putting everything into the jig and then just push a button and the robot can come in and drop those screws in very, very quickly. These screws need to go in with a certain amount of torque. You could get RSI if you keep doing that for a while. That's not... Could you just explain RSI for those who don't know? Uh, repetitive strain injury. It's commonly in the wrists and hands, like if you're trying to get a lid off of a jar or something and you do that over and over again, it really starts to take a toll on the muscles and the joints in your hands. So stuff like that. It's quite common that assembly tasks do require that sort of movement and that's really tough on the human hands. We didn't evolve to do that sort of thing. Mm. Um, back strain mm. as well from heavy lifting is another example of what a robot could take over as well. Mm. So it's like a stepping stone to more complex automation projects. Yes. And this is what makes it a little less intimidating in terms of the fear that robots are going to replace people. It's not about replacing the human worker. It's about collaborating with the human. Yeah. Augmenting their work is how we look at it. So from my experiences in China and across Asia the last few years visiting so many of these factories, they're not places that you would ever really want to be spending all of your time doing the same thing over and over again. Mm. Uh, and we can help chip away at those worst worst jobs that people are doing as they're working like robots mm. um, picking something up sticking it inside something else and just doing that thousands of times per day stop people from having to do those and then you can maintain or expand the same workforce but expand your output with the same number of people 
and maybe we can improve people's quality of life with this type of product. The data does show that that is true. People don't shrink the size of their workforce. They buy robots to increase their quality and to increase their throughput. There you go. Because it is a little bit politically tricky, isn't it? If we're talking about automation, it can be sometimes seen as at the expense of human labor, correct? Yes, but generally companies struggle more if they don't automate than if they do. So, I mean, if the choice is getting some robots in to work alongside the people that you already have or potentially going completely bust or having to outsource to another part of the world, that's definitely a worse option. So this also helps bring back production closer to the consumers of the product, which is good from a sustainability perspective as well. It means you don't have to burn all those fuels to ship things around the world. You can run these processes in the community almost. Yes. You're reminding me of the same kind of arguments that were made with 3D printing, where it becomes more localized, closer to the consumer, and you can fit a 3D printer in your house, and you could fit this into your house. Yeah, exactly. You uh, wouldn't call that a robot, though, right? Is that, well, that is a robot. Mm. Mm. You could potentially call a 3D printer a robot. If you wanted out of stretch, you could call your washing machine a robot. Something that takes a task that was traditionally done by humans and, and kind of automates it and has some kind of mechanical interaction with its environment. I would generally draw the line with the washing machine and the 3D printer not being robots because it's not really repurposable. Repurposable? Mm. Yeah, we're going to say repurposable. Um, Repurposability, baby. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is your personal way of defining what a robot is, or this is some kind of universally accepted term. I don't think there is one absolutely fixed definition of a robot. They vary from source to source. Broadly, people think about something that in some way resembles a human. Right. Yeah. So that's the most high level definition of it. But then if you're looking at stuff like autonomous cars. Um, mm, that's a robot. Yeah. Although I guess that's more replacing a horse than a human. It's a constant evolution of work of what people do in order to feed themselves. It's changed constantly. When someone invented the wheel... That took away the job of the person who was maybe carrying someone previously or the donkey that was doing it. Um, mm -hmm. it's, this is the way that things evolve and we just need to ensure that it has good outcomes. Yeah, very good. Well, what is the competition that you're facing here in China? The innovation kind of landscape here is unique and interesting. The fact that everything is made here means that you can iterate on designs extremely fast. So if the factory that's making your prototypes is 10 minutes down the road, you can send them something and they'll update it and they will build you a new one and send it within a day or two. Right. And you can evolve your product offering very, very quickly. And that's, that's not just for robotics, that's for all different sorts of things. And the way people look at intellectual property here is kind of different as well. <laughs> It's not as taboo to kind of copy something that someone else has done. It is kind of seen as sort of a mark of respect almost. This is a great thing. I want to make something like this. So that has resulted in lots of products that are very similar to ours coming out of the Chinese market. Um, I'm guessing specifically products like yours, because it would be a lot harder for them to try and compete with the big robots that we would see coming out of, let's say, Japan or Germany, right? Yeah, there have been European and Japanese players that have been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years. Mm. And that technology is mature, I would say, whereas the whole sphere of collaborative robots only started 
15 years ago pretty much mm. so the policymakers here see that subsection of industrial robots as one that china can still potentially catch up and take the lead on oh. and that's why there is a lot of investment going into this area as well in china well that must make your life a little bit more full of headaches than otherwise it might have I mean, we're all working towards the same end goal. So ultimately, it's good. It's going to improve the lives of more people. And all of the local competition, I would say, is striving to have a product that is 50, 60% as good as ours and mm. try to drive prices down. But for the most easy to program, the most feature laden, the most mature, the most stable platform, then customers are still choosing ours. If it's easy to buy but not easy to use, those people are never going to come back. Well, let's talk about that then. So the ease of use, what you mean about that is you need less and less input from the human being, correct? Yes. And this is where it's not just about the mechanics of it. It's about converging other technologies onto the mechanics of it. Yeah. So what are these technologies? So as I've said, we've got an interface for controlling, for programming this system that is a big step in the right direction towards ease of use compared to what robot systems look like previously. But you are telling the robot exactly what to do in every scenario. That's essentially what the logic of the program that you're writing is. If mm. you find this situation, you need to do this. If something isn't exactly how it expected it to be, you're probably just going to have the robot stop and say, I need help. There's no way to deal with variation in the environment. But there are things going on that look like they're going to make a difference in that way when we come to have more AI and vision processing involved in robot applications. Instead of you specifically having to say what to do in every scenario, if it can see something is not quite right because it's looking all the time and it can compare that to previous scenarios that it's seen before, then it becomes easier and you'll have to spend less time telling it exactly what to do. Yes. These small robots, this convenience, and then you converge that with the vision. It can see what's going on around it, then react to what it can see and learn how to do it differently. That's the future, right? Yeah. And there's maybe even more of a need for that with collaborative scenarios because people are inherently unpredictable uh, they don't do things exactly the same every time so you need a system that can deal with those variances and continue working mm -hmm. yeah which then makes it more productive but then this is where it also gets into scary territory right because it's scary enough when it's just robotics we're talking about literally just taking over jobs of human beings but then when we go into ai and you're looking at me with a very neutral expression like, oh, what's he going to say? Come on, you must have heard this. <laughs> the whole scariness about robots taking over the world. I mean, even though you're working on this very specific thing, what part do you play in this? I think this sort of AI tasks that we're talking about here are in a very narrow space. It's about making it slightly more capable to deal with variation in one scenario. This kind of broad AI where it knows how to handle all different kind of scenarios and, and make decisions like that's a very long way away from what we're talking about in this kind of narrow space here. I don't think we're that close to it yet. I'm not exactly in that field, but from what I see from the sorts of AI tasks that we're looking at integrating here, it's not that. But you're close to having AI in these small robots so that it can start to learn. That's coming up in the next iteration or two of these robots. Yeah, there are third-party systems that can augment our products with that sort of functionality. Ah. 
as soon as the robustness, the reliability of those systems and the price comes down, then yeah. You're talking about the robustness, but then the driverless vehicles, for example. I mean, some experts say it's a matter of years and some experts say it'll never happen. Where are you on that spectrum? I think we're quite close. Tesla has rolled out their autopilot software, which um, to cover themselves, you still have to be in the driver's seat with your eyes open and your hands on the wheel in order for it to function. But it can essentially do it. I've not tried it myself. I've tried an older version where it would just stay in lane, but not the full autopilot kind of thing. Yeah, it seems to be there. I mean, you still need the legislation side of things. So there is a hell of a lot of regulation uh, that needs to go around this. And that's probably what's going to slow things down is that we've got to be really certain that this is all right and safe and everyone signs off on it. So that's yeah, what's going to slow things down potentially. Except for if there is some country in the world that fast tracks it because they want to have the first mover advantage. Can you imagine that it might be a kind of regulatory race to the bottom to try and be the head of the competition? I can't imagine anyone being reckless with this because the consequences are quite severe. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I'm interested in your story because it's not everyone you meet on the streets who comes from the world of robotics. It's one of the reasons why when I first met you, I was very excited to understand what you do. How did you get into this field? So from the robotics degree in England, uh, I had a Chinese professor and I wanted to travel when I finished my undergraduate degree. And he helped me get a job in uh, his previous university where he did his PhD in Xi'an. Ah, Xi'an. That was your first place in China. It was, yeah. That is my Laojia in China, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I've only been as a tourist. What's it like to live in Xi'an? Phenomenal. So I went from the north of England to the ancient capital of 13 dynasties uh, Mm. in the middle of China and these beautiful city walls. And then you've got the bell tower and the drum tower. And then you add to that some fantastic noodles, uh, which uh, (laughs) also made me enjoy it even more. The Xianese cuisine is still my favorite type of Chinese food. How how do you define Xianese cuisine? wide wide noodles <laughs> with a, a healthy uh, dose of chili and, and garlic and oil intense flavors i think but yeah mm. very good and these are handmade noodles yes yeah would they be as delicious if a robot had made them i think so a, well, <laughs> a well-programmed robot yes <laughs> um and then that was when you first started working uh, yeah, so 50% of the time working in the university. So there um, are a number of student robotics competitions in China and around the world. And I was helping to prepare some of the student teams for those competitions, football competitions. So <laughs> using either robots with wheels or little humanoid legged robots to try to win a football competition. And you basically just set them down and then your program has to make all of the decisions for the whole game. So you can't make any adjustments. You've just got to kind of and hope that go. you've programmed it well enough that it can deal with these different scenarios. Um, okay. That was interesting. I'd never been involved in those sorts of competitions before, but because I had a kind of different way of approaching challenges, maybe I could help them look at things from a different perspective. Um, and then I spent the rest of my time in Chinese classes in the university as well. So that's kind of what got me hooked and why I'm still here 15 years later. Oh, wow. Right. What is the future for you then? So do you see yourself staying in this field? Do you see yourself staying in China? Well, I think for the rest of, of my life, I'm definitely going to be in and out of China. 
this is my third stint here now. I've gone and done other things and come back again. I think that's going to continue. I really enjoy the challenges of living here and the sort of fulfillment that I get from speaking Mandarin and just interacting with people here. So um, maybe we'll be away for a little while again and then come back again. But uh, I think, yeah, this is a, a lifelong, career-long thing, my uh, interaction with China. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. Let's move on to part two. Okay. So here are the 10 questions. I ask everyone who is sitting on that chair these same 10 questions. I'm not entirely sure what to expect from the likes of you, Andrew. Are you going to be robotic about these answers? <laughs> we'll see, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump in. Question one, which comes from Shanghai Daily. What is your favorite China-related fact? I'm going to stay robotic on this one in that uh, there are now over a million industrial robots deployed in China. That's almost three times as much as the next largest deployment base, which is Japan. So it's uh, the center of the robotic manufacturing world now. Uh, Japan, Korea, the US and Germany are the next four. And I think it's, don't hold me to it, but somewhere in the realm of all those four put together are equal Mm. to what we've got set up in China. And is that just a function of there being that much more manufacturing in China? Yeah. Yeah. Next question, which comes from Rosetta Stone. Do you have a favorite word or phrase in Chinese? Ruxiang sui su. When in Rome. So ah. when when you enter the village, do what the people do, which uh, I think has done me fairly well here in my, my years in China in that yes. I'm... Uh, willing to try anything pretty much and uh, very happy to go into little places and, and be able to chat with people and sort of just experience a little bit of what, what their lives are like here. I really uh, I really enjoy that and uh, I use it to justify maybe skipping a line in a train station or something oh, no. every so often when I'm late. I'm like, well, that's just what you do here, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Oh, dear me, yes. That's a good one. Yeah, I like it. Next question, which comes from Naked Retreats. What is your favorite destination within China? Can you guess based on the conversation that we've just had? I would say it's Xi'an. It is Xi'an, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I love going back there. How often do you go back? I used to go there a couple of times a year. It's Mm. not been so much recently, maybe twice in the last three years, three times in the last three years, something like that. Which just goes to show how tricky it is to travel in these times, right? Yeah. If you left China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least? The most... going to have to be Taobao I think Um, (laughs) this is so funny because I wouldn't put you as a Taobao kind of guy because normally it's like fashionistas who are buying dresses and who are buying like all kinds of cute things but no even the robot guy is addicted to Taobao yeah every electronics product every electronics component Ah. has an outlet from the factory straight onto Taobao that can be at your door within a couple of days yeah and having bought all that stuff on Taobao and then going to Singapore and seeing what the markup is like it's incredible like and you can see why the technology development is so rapid here as well because you can buy all of this stuff and prototype yeah yeah it's not as expensive as trying to do it elsewhere yeah and then what about the thing you'd miss the least Potentially uh, having to check the air quality in the mornings. Um, that's a bit of a drag, and especially with little lungs to worry about. Um, uh, you mean your children, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think I have normal-sized lungs, but they have little lungs. You've got how many kids? Uh, two. At what age? Two and a half and nine months. 
Yes, this is it. Like now, I've stopped paying attention to it, and I have the feeling it's getting better, and so I kind of just live my life. But I guess when you have little kids, you start to get more. What is the index today, right? Yeah, and it's improved so much since the early days, and、uh, the worst polluted days now are roughly on par with least polluted days then. Yes. <laughs> Next question: Is there anything that still surprises you about life in China? Yes, I think that's why I'm still here. Just、mm. this, this things on the street, even in in Shanghai, which is a top level city, you still can walk around the corner and see things. You just don't understand why they're happening, but you love that they are happening. My wife told me coming to meet me on Sunday that she saw a, an old lady cuddling a duck on the street on the way there, and like, don't know why, why, why is that happening? But I'm very happy that it is. <laughs> Listen, the world needs much more duck cuddling than it has right now. I'm all for it. <laughs> I'm trying to think if I've seen a duck being cuddled on the street. I think I've seen a monkey. I've seen a turtle. Of course, dogs dressed in all kinds of clothing, but that I think is a global trend now.、Mm. That's not just Shanghai, right? Turtles on a stick. Yeah, I like those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's so common, right? I think I see them once a week.、Yeah. <laughs> Next question, which comes from Smart Shanghai. What is your favourite place to go to eat, drink, or hang out? We're living in Jing'an, and there's a, a new development opened up quite close called Shangkangli.、Um, yes. Has a number of bars and restaurants. Has a, a tap house with some decent beer and a courtyard that's away from the road, so can drink beer and let kids run around. It's a, it's a nice combination. There you go. Not particularly cultural, but、uh, <laughs> it's, it's easy. <laughs> Yeah, you've got that combination of having a beer, but then also being a pseudo responsible parent.、Mm, pseudo. <laughs> <laughs> Next question: What is the best or worst purchase you have made in China? This is very hard because the Taobao history goes back a long, long way. The best one in recent memory is、uh, when we returned to China in March 2020, just before the borders closed. We had to do 14 days of home quarantine,、oh, yeah. so there was a number of purchases to set up an adventure playground in our living room with kind of ball pits and tunnels and different climbing frames and stuff.、Um, <laughs> that I think I did a pretty good job with that one. I've got a feeling that you had more fun putting it up than your kid had playing with it. <laughs> That's entirely possible. <laughs> Very nice. This is the thing about having kids. When you have kids, you can sort of start to relive your childhood and become a kid yourself. Yeah, I now have an excuse to be as childish as I was in the interim between being a child myself and having children. But now I don't have to hide it so much because <laughs> I don't have kids, and I'm now in my mid forties. And sometimes I wonder if I'm very childish because I don't have a kid. But maybe men are just childish. <laughs> That's the conclusion. Yeah. What is your favourite WeChat sticker? IE Fight Club. Okay, let's have a look. Oh, I see what you mean. Can you explain what this is? This is a disagreement between two IEs who who decide to resolve it by kicking each other. <laughs> And、uh, I'm not sure if I've actually seen this exact thing on the street, but it seems like a nice example of also something that's still. Maybe doesn't surprise me, but I just love seeing kind of silly things happening on the street, and、yes. they happen quite a lot around here. Well, this makes me think of two things. The first thing is that this has been chosen before. In season two, there was a Belgian English architect called Wendy Saunders, and she chose this exact favorite sticker for the exact same reason. <laughs> <laughs> and it also reminds me of 
actually episode one of season one, which was Philippe Gass, the CEO of Disneyland Shanghai. And he was saying how you see people shouting at each other on the streets, and even to the extent that they might be violent, like this sticker. It is part of the way people communicate. It's the kind of energy that I enjoy being around, even though it can sometimes spill over into things like this sticker. <laughs> yeah, if you've never experienced it before, it seems like people are very angry, but that's not necessarily always the case, is it? It's yes. just a different sort of etiquette. <laughs> Next question. What is your go-to song to sing at KTV? Mm, it's been a while since I've sung it, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, Dreadlock Holiday by 10cc. What the hell is that? It's kind of ska reggae-ish. Yeah. This is from the 70s, no? Yeah. But you can find it on the KTV systems if you look hard enough. Really? Yeah. I'm not sure I know it. Like, what is this song? I'm not going to sing it. I'll I'll recite the words to you Which one is it? I don't like cricket. Oh! I love it. Okay. (laughs) I know this one. This is such a deep cut in terms of British culture. (laughs) I'm sure no one else knows this song apart from Brits. Uh, Yeah, I think that's probably right, yeah. (laughs) In case anyone doesn't know, it goes, I don't like cricket. Oh, no. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I can't stand cricket. Are you a cricket fan? No, not at all. (laughs) God, if you were to sing that song at KTV, it would be the opposite of cross-cultural communication. because It wouldn't bring people to you. It would completely repel people. (laughs) I'm mainly in KTV for my own enjoyment, so that doesn't really bother me. I know nobody else enjoys it when I sing, but I I do sometimes. (sighs) Very good. I would never have guessed that that was available at KTV in China. Even now, right? You find it. Oh, God. And finally, question 10, which comes from JustPod, which is the studio we are recording this in today. What or who is your biggest source of inspiration in China? So I think what... We talked a bit about the language before, and I think it inspires me to keep learning and to keep learning more about the country and just see characters that I don't know Mm. on the street every day. And I just still want to keep understanding what they mean, how you say them, where they come from. I guess that kind of plugs into the engineering sort of attention to detail thing as well, that if I see something that I don't know, I always want to pull out my phone and look it up, which is considered as mildly antisocial by some but i still do it um i'll never get to the end of the dictionary on that one there's still always so much more to learn and it fascinates me well said thank you so much andrew i appreciate that you were able to talk about something which is very complicated in a way which is quite accessible i'm sure you dumbed it down i don't know how many degrees but uh, i found it fascinating i definitely look forward to seeing how this progresses Some of me thinks it's for the better, and the other half is still a little bit scared. But thank you for at least taking the edge off the most scary parts. (laughs) You're very welcome. Let's revisit it in 20 years and see where we're at. (laughs) That is, again, wishful thinking. (laughs) Before I let you leave, tell me, out of everyone you know in China, who would you recommend that I interview for the next season of Mosaic of China? So Alex Mock Uh, She is a Swedish architect, and I think she would be a great person for you to talk to. Okay, thank you. Short, concise. Thanks again for your time today, Andrew. Thank you very much. So the biggest update since the time Andrew and I did this recording is that he and his family have moved to the US. He's still with Universal Robots, and his new role is in global product innovation. 
And as Andrew mentioned, his career has always been in and out of China, so let's see how long it takes before he's back in this part of the world. Please head to the Mosaic of China website or social media to see all the extra photos and graphics from today's show. Just do a search for Mosaic of China on Facebook or LinkedIn, or Oscology on Instagram and WeChat. The most hilarious of all the photos Andrew shared was the one in which he illustrates his interpretation of his favorite phrase in Chinese, which was "Ru xiang sui su." I mention this in particular because the English equivalent phrase of "when in Rome" goes some way to explain how these Chinese Chengyu idioms work. In English, you can just say "when in Rome." You don't need to say the whole phrase, which explains that it's about doing as the Romans do. Neither do you need to know that the phrase originates from the letters of Pope Clement the Fourteenth in 1777. But you will certainly know how confusing it would be to say it to somebody who is a beginner in English. So that will give you a sense of how confounding it is to try and cope with the hundreds of Chengyu that crop up in Chinese. Today's premium version of the show is another bumper edition. There's an extra 20 minutes of content this week. As always, you'll find all the information on how to subscribe at mosaicofchina.com. But in the meantime, here are a few clips. When you are looking at Taobao in the future, you'll start to see some Chinese competitors already put things up there. Yeah, I, I've found them on Taobao before. The shoulder joint on the the human arm is crazy complicated, so we've kind of separated those out and just put them next to each other. I rock up with my suitcase and just drop it in between two people on the production line. It's really not very disruptive. Elderly care for China. There aren't going to be as many younger family members to look after the older people. They have the bed which shoots Wallace down into his pants. I haven't quite managed to、uh, build that one yet. <laughs> Robots jumping over crates and doing backflips. I do wonder when I see those videos how heavily choreographed they are. I'm not going to question it too much. I'm going to just try and relax about this whole thing. Jichiren, <laughs> Jichiren, <laughs> machine man. Seriously? Yeah. Andrew mentioned the innovation landscape in China, particularly among Chinese competitors. So, a fascinating accompaniment to this episode is my chat with Gina Lee from season one, episode six, who tells the exact flip side to Andrew's story. Of course, another overlap is with the recent episode with the CTO Eric Liu in episode one of this season, whose work on the metaverse in China is also converging with artificial intelligence. And finally, Andrew also mentioned the way people look at intellectual property here in China. So, for an in-depth look into that world, you definitely need to listen to the episode with the lawyer Vittorio Francese from season two, episode twenty-seven. Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs, with artwork by Denny Newell. If you enjoy fairly technical conversations like today's episode, then you're also going to like the following catch-ups. Firstly, with the fire engineer Michael Kinsey from season two, episode twenty-five, and then with the fintech philosopher himself, Srinivas Yanamandra. And we'll be back with another full episode next week. Hello, Michael. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> It is good to see you. I haven't seen you so much since we did our recording, but we have been in touch electronically all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for anyone who didn't hear your original episode, I should explain that you are a fire engineer. How would you explain it? 
we work with other engineers and architects helping make sure their part of the design is safe for people during fires or hopefully prevents the fires happening in the first place yeah um, we've done evacuation trials of a double decker multi-level high-speed train oh. um, so and this was a prototype train so it's super interesting previously we'd done evacuation trials of a high-speed train mm. but now we're doing a multi-level train um, how interesting i've seen those in germany I don't think I've seen them anywhere else in the world, actually. Have they started running in China yet? There are some. Um, they're typically a bit taller than normal high-speed trains. Right. So there's only certain routes they can run them on. We were looking at human behavior, looking at how we could get people off in efficient ways, um, some of the problems people might have, recording performance of how long it takes people to do things. That has been absolutely fascinating. Interesting. What about the next thing then, Michael? So what is next for you? So I'm actually planning on leaving Shanghai. Um, I'm going to be staying with my current company, Arup, and I'm transferring to their Birmingham office in the UK. Right. I have two children who live with their mum in Shanghai. Um, we're divorced. With me leaving, the kids are going to stay here for now. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting ride. My daughter is coming up to 11. My son is coming up to nine. Um, my daughter's fine speaking English, but my son doesn't like it. Mm. So I have to try and balance the two. Sometimes I even get my daughter to translate if I can't quite communicate what I want to say. Wow. So the plan in terms of the kids are we're hopeful that they can come to the UK for high school. Um, so oh, right. that the idea is they've had an education where they can learn, read and write Chinese, probably had a slightly higher amount of discipline instilled. And then when they come to the UK, hopefully they can have the best of both worlds. In terms of me missing them, the idea is we're going to have regular video chats. Um, of course, it's not going to be the same. Yeah. It's lucky that they're at the age where they can at least understand what's going on. You know, it's not like they are toddlers and suddenly you're gone and you're only on a computer screen. They get it. Absolutely. I mean, when we first came here, this was like six and a half years ago. They were totally different. Now they're older. I feel a bit more comfortable. that They have a slightly more settled life. They go to school here. They can understand when I tell them, you know, daddy's going to be going to another country, but still love you very much. Yeah. Um, I'm here for you. If you ever need me, you just call me. I'll come. Um, that kind of stuff. It's hard conversations. Um, coming here was a, is a hard decision in many ways. Um, going through a divorce in a foreign country was also a challenge. Yeah. Um, I had to fly to Xinjiang to get the divorce done on my own. No, you know, no translator or anything. And they were like, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm here to get a divorce. And I'm like, what? Wow. Um, so the time in China is littered with those sort of stories. When you look back, you think, wow, how did that happen? Um, and yeah, it gives you confidence in what you're doing, I guess, in oh. some ways. <laughs> Birmingham would be a breeze after this. <laughs> No, I appreciate that, Michael, because I got to know you in terms of what you do, but I think it's nice to cover this part of your life just briefly in this chat as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, the person who you nominated for the next season sadly also left Shanghai. It's a shame, but at the, at the same time, um, you know, I'm very glad that you are part of this project. It gives me an excuse now to keep in touch with you as you move on with your career around the world. So good luck with the future. Thanks a lot. Hey, Srini, nice to see you. Good to see you again. Thank you. Uh, you're no longer in Shanghai, correct? Yes. Now I moved to Hyderabad. So, so for the last three months, I'm continuing my new role here in this place. Are you still working in the field of compliance? Now, in fact, I think you pushed me to my new role. That's what I should say. <laughs> I still am in the compliance profession, but I moved to fintech side more. Uh, the largest fintech company in India. 
Paytm. Truly as a fintech philosopher. Ah, that's so funny. I thought of your compliance role going into the realm of technology. I think that was where I came up with the title fintech. But you're right, it wasn't very accurate, but now you've made it accurate. <laughs> Indeed, because I work for the largest fintech payment company and we have got the same kind of a cookbook what we have seen in China. The same thing is happening in India, but at a much faster pace. The fintech payments need some amount of uh, ecosystem governance and compliance. So that is one part of the role. And personally, as you know me, I keep thinking about these things in a little more um, contemporary context. So mm. I, I started doing my doctoral research, second doctoral research I started to pursue, uh, which is about um, metaverse actually, and the kind of reality that the metaverse is going to do. In our last catch-up, which was now 18 months ago, I think you mentioned that you had just started some research in bioethics at that point, correct? So that was a global master's in bioethics from Anahuac uh, University from Mexico. So that is already on progress, actually. But because of this relocation, because of the uh, time that it takes to spend in terms of weekends, I was a bit delayed. So that is getting completed in about six months' time. You already are a doctor. So you already have one PhD. How many masters and PhDs do you actually have at this point? <laughs> I had one, but I have fascination to have three. So this is one of my second one. Oh my so I'm God. expecting at least uh, by the end of my life, I should have three PhDs. <laughs> you know, when I talk to people doing their PhDs, they say what a nightmare it is and how they only just survived with their faculties intact. And you want to have three? Oh, my word. It's like, how do you create an album for your life? When you work professionally, you'll get a lot of these uh, reflections of the work. And if you can codify these reflections into some form of academic writing, it solidifies what you have done professionally. Yeah. So each of your PhDs, you're like an album that you're creating for the five, six years of professional journey that you have done. I totally understand that. Well, let's talk about your leaving China, because when somebody who was on the mosaic does leave, the first thing I do is to remind you what you said that you would miss the most and miss the least when you left China. So now I can test if it's true or not. <laughs> so you said that you would miss walking to work, which actually was quite a luxury for anyone in Shanghai too. And you said that you wouldn't miss having no access to your Telugu movies. Is that what you miss the most and miss the least? Or what is the reality? Now, the reality is that I could regain both the things now. So even the walking is like five minutes away because I'm mostly operating in a tech company and they have given me a work from home option. So I think that has come back. And then with the added uh, alternative of um, watching Telugu movies, at least every week uh, uh, we end up in uh, getting into one or other uh, movies. Please watch the South Indian movie called RRR. The best movie uh, which you can watch. International, <laughs> standard, international standard. It is awesome. You should watch that movie. Well, there you go. I always knew you were a super fan, but now you are becoming an ambassador for Bollywood as well. <laughs> well, Srini, I want to thank you as usual um, for being part of this project. It's now been two updates following our original episode, and I hope that we have this excuse to keep in touch every year at least. Definitely, Oscar, and I should thank you personally and to all the viewers, because every time you do this kind of podcast, I always uh, have a surge in my connections list, both on LinkedIn, WeChat and Facebook, somebody <laughs> or other people bumping in. 
and thanks to you uh, it is actually keeping me lively and engaged um, and look forward to staying in touch thank you